What I like to do, whether it's a Slough Creek or a Beckler Meadows or a Blackfoot River in Idaho, is I will go ahead and fish the bank furthest away from me and fish with a downstream drift. In other words, I put that fly ahead of me and use the current to get a uh, natural drift and just keep on. It's almost like uh, steelheading. You walk down through an area, you know, take that fly, put it on the other side of the bank, let it drift close to the bank or into a hole. But That was Bruce Stables describing how to target spooky Yellowstone cutthroat. We're getting an early start today as we head back into Yellowstone National Park. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thank you for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. If you get a chance uh, right now, please take a moment and share this episode uh, with another person or two that would like a little taste of Yellowstone National Park and some of the cool opportunities that are there. Uh, you can just click the link in your app and, uh, and click that share button and copy that and send that out to somebody. I uh, would appreciate uh, that in advance. Bruce Staples, the author of multiple books on fishing the Yellowstone country and backcountry, takes us to the water today. Bruce breaks down some specifics on fishing high country, um, what the Lysen Ring lift is all about, the Yellowstone Sally, and other great patterns today. Uh, plus, we get into a little bit on his dry muddler. Are you ready to dig into this one today? Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Without further ado, here is Bruce Staples. How's it going, Bruce? Well, pretty good. I'd rather be out fishing, though. Yeah, yeah. Have you been doing any fishing uh, this summer? Yes, we have, but it's been a very tough year up here with uh, the drought we've been having. It's particularly affected our a lot of our uh, smaller streams and uh, irrigation reservoirs, you know, the demand for agricultural purposes. But yeah, I've made it out. Yeah, good, good. Well, we're going to dig into, you've written a number of books on uh, Yellowstone and you know, West Yellowstone, the back, all sorts of Yellowstone books. We're going to dig into some of those books and some topics there. Um, but before we get into all that and talk about the deep into the fishing, talk about how you first got into fly fishing. Well, I was, uh, my profession, I was a um, process chemist out of the Idaho National Lab, and my colleagues got me into it. I first came out here, I was a bait fisherman, and they shamed me into fly fishing back in the early 70s. And and, of course, I took up fly tying afterwards, you know. I was just, you know, the combination just fascinated me. But this was back early in the early 70s, uh, mid-70s. So when did you start um, thinking that you were going to write a book on, uh, you know, your first book? What was that first book? Very interesting. It was uh, called uh, Snake River Flies and Waters by, and uh, published by Frank Amato. And uh, that was published in 1992, I believe. I did three. Ended up doing up three books for Frank Amato between that date and 2003. 2003, yeah. And we had uh, we had a great episode. Had Frank on a while back. Uh, I'll link out to that one in, in the show notes. Um, but how did how did you run into Frank? I mean, obviously he's been a staple out here. Uh, what, what was that interaction like when you first met him? Well, I submitted my book proposal for the Snake River Country Flies and Waters to several publishers. And Frank was the only one who was interested in it. And uh, he finally uh, sent me a contract and uh, we took it from there. And I've had a couple other people that wish they'd, <laughs> they'd signed a contract with me. But uh, yeah, I just established a relation with Frank and his company and it worked real well for many years. Nice. Uh, yeah, I remember that book too. That's that that book I've... Uh... I think I still have it on my shelf. I know um, I've had a few. Um, well, we. I'm trying to think of the other book. I mean, obviously, you got the Snake River, and then you got a lot of your other titles are focused on actual Yellowstone. Well, yeah, I did. Uh, he did his. He had that series of books that he did, and I did the in the series there, uh, River Journal series. I did the Yellowstone Park uh, edition for him. That was back in '96 or '98, somewhere right around in there. Okay. 96 and, and and you're still writing. So now you've written 
And this most recent book just came out. So in, you know, over 20 years you've written, uh, what, what do you have there? How, how many total books do you have out? Six. Yeah, six books. Exactly. Yeah, three by Frank and three by uh, three through Stackpole. Right on. Well, today we're going to dig into a little bit on, um, you know, just kind of some of the Yellowstone stuff. I, I was up there this summer and we had a good time. We didn't dig in. Uh, we did a little bit of hiking in the backcountry, but we didn't do a ton of it. I'm curious when you say, you know, the one book has backcountry in the title, what, what's the big difference between, say, when you write the book about Yellowstone backcountry versus just Yellowstone? Because it seems like a lot of Yellowstone's kind of the backcountry. What is the difference between those books? Well, it was interesting. You know, there's tons of information in the media about the icon streams, you know, the Madison, the Firehole, the Yellowstone, Henry Swark, et cetera, et cetera. But nothing about backcountry. And in this area, the greater Yellowstone area, fly fishing is increasingly popular. And we've had a lot of people complain, you know, they get to the Madison or the South Fork Reach of the Snake River and it's crowded. And, you know, I spend a little bit of time down at Jimmy's All Seasons Angler here in Idaho Falls. And people were saying, find me a place where I got some tranquility, you know, and uh, less crowded conditions. And so I contacted Stackpole and, um, they, right away, they didn't let me finish my sentence. They said, we're sending you a contract. Huh. This is back about, um, oh, I'd say 2016, 2015. And that book was published and you know, uh, Fly Fishing the Greater Yellowstone Backcountry was published in 2017. There you go. Yeah. And that one you dug into. Let, let's talk about that book a little bit. So you dug sure. into... How do you break that out? Because you got a lot of streams up there. Uh, maybe just talk about that book and how somebody might utilize that one to, I guess you get away from some of the crowds. Well, what I did was I organized it uh, first in uh, four large sections. The first one was Yellowstone Park, backcountry. Uh, next one would be um, Idaho. These are all part of the greater Yellowstone. So it would be eastern Idaho, backcountry, and Montana, backcountry, and Wyoming, backcountry, just did it that way. So it's in the four sections. And within that book, you know, I express my, ex, uh, my experiences, my fishing experiences, do this, do that, et cetera, do it this time, you know, these, these kind of things. But um, it's more, it's in kind of the uh, essence of a, fl- of a guidebook. And in the front, I've put a lot of the uh, things that you need uh, in the media to help you, you know, how to, where to stay, uh, you know, uh, websites, uh, things like that, you know, just trying to keep things up to date. Whereas, you know, in so many books, you don't see this, you know, uh, in front of every every uh, water that I discuss, there's information to get people onto the internet and uh, look at various things, you know, the shops, uh, say accommodations, uh, uh, what flies to use, what equipment to use, et cetera, et cetera. That'd be individual for each water I discuss. Gotcha. And for the backcountry, for Yellowstone, the backcountry section, uh, how many how many water bodies did you talk about there? And was this was this mostly streams? Oh, there's several in there. You know, um, you know, like uh, for instance, um, Fall River Basin or uh, Shoshone Lake or uh, Upper Slough Creek or, in particular, Heart Lake Basin. You know, these places. Gotcha. And I remember, uh, yeah, I remember Upper Slough Creek. Um, we were in that area for a little bit. Um, maybe we can dig into that one a little bit. Do, do you sure. really, I'm just thinking, you know, when you think about Slough Creek, um, you know, what should somebody, let, first let's go back to if somebody's planning a trip, you know, to Yellowstone. Let's just say we're, we're thinking of doing something here this next year. Mm-hmm. Um, where do they start? Could they just grab this book on the backcountry and, and would that help them plan their whole trip? Yes, this would help them plan and tell them who they need to contact, you know, like uh, if they want to reserve a, a campsite, campground site, you know, the campground on Slough Creek, it would tell them do this, do that, you know, go to the Yellowstone Park uh, uh, website and uh, reserve that campground, place in that campground the date in which you want to stay there. Um, the problem with Slough Creek is it's it gets very crowded. And so um, throughout the season, you're going to have a lot of company 
Now, the further up you go in Slough Creek, you know, the fewer people you'll have. But nevertheless, it's uh, it's not like it used to be 20, 20, 25, 30 years ago. You're going to have plenty of company fishing, but uh, there's a definite strategy for fishing it. And it's very similar to the Fall River Basin streams, you know, Fall River and Beckler River, and even that short stretch of Hart River below Hart Lake. Gotcha. So we're talking about... Uh, just for clarification, one species that we're looking at fishing for throughout this whole area? I would say uh, that book, particularly in Slough Creek, covers from uh, the end of runoff, which is usually around the 1st of July, right up through September. Okay. So that's when you're talking about planning it, you think the best time would be starting in July. You wouldn't want to start a trip before that? Well, the best thing to do, just like I... um, uh, offer in the book would be to contact uh, the park and see what kind of se- shape Slough Creek is in. It's a runoff stream. You know, a lot of the streams up here are runoff streams. This is high country. And so the thing you want to do is as much as possible, find out when it is begins, when this fishable season begins. And that depends on the snowfall we've had, you know, the previous winter of when you want to do your trip. Uh, there's times when you can go up there in the uh, end of June and it's in fishable conditions. There's other times when you've got to wait till early July. You know, you want to wait till runoff comes out of that stream, just like so many streams in the greater Yellowstone area, anything that drains high country. Okay. So that's the start of it. So first, make sure it's clear. But I guess if you're planning way ahead and getting the campgrounds, how, how far out do you have to reserve those campgrounds to, to make sure you have something? I would say as early as you can, because, you know, particularly like the last couple of years, the park has been extremely crowded. And so let's say that uh, Dave Stewart's planning to uh, be in Slough Creek in the second week of July. I would start the first of the year reserving a place in that campground. Okay. And can you, so you can't reserve it early, like right now you couldn't reserve it. You got to do it at the first of the year. I don't think so. I think what happens is they begin their reservation uh, system early in the year, but you can find this out through the Yellowstone Park website. Exactly. Which Okay. So that's the first start where you would get, and I remember Slough Creek because we stayed there and it was super busy. Um, and we actually ended up doing like day trips. We, we parked and then we hiked up the trail and, uh, th- you know, had our stuff and we got up there. It was really cool because although there was tons of people at the campground, we walked up the trail and we got out in the middle and we had a whole section to ourselves other than the bison. So is that the bonus of the backcountry is that you can just get away from everybody? Yeah, that's, that's one of the things you, you've got the tranquility you don't find in a lot of the streams with traffic. You know, a good example, of course, is, uh, the fire hole and, uh, you know, even the Madison this time of year when you got the Hebgen Lake uh, run-up fish in there, you know, those places are crowded. And you get in the backcountry, and your chances of seeing somebody is, you know, occasionally you might see somebody else in there that's looking for the same thing you are. You're looking for the tranquility. You know, the big picture to me on, on fishing is not just catching fish. It's the total experience. In other words, the scenery, the tranquility, the fishing that kind of thing. And the backcountry is, you know, it's the best place to find that sort of thing. You just have to remember about the park, you know, uh, the only place where boats are allowed on is on Yellowstone Lake and Shoshone and Lewis Lake. No other place, no other place in the park. Uh, it's all off limits to boats, for example. That's right. Yeah. It's pretty unique. It's, it's cool. So, so is the difference in fishing say versus, um, you know, Slough Creek up there, you hike up the trail in the upper, you know, kind of the backcountry versus, say, lower Slough or even into the, some of the lower Lamar Valley. What's the difference as far as fishing? Is Are there a lot of similarities? Well, they're all meadow streams, and so you use tactics, you know, I don't care if it's Lamar or uh, Slough Creek or Soda Butte Creek. They're all meadow streams, so you use uh, their t- those tactics. The thing is, the Lamar River unless you get up there about three miles and Sotheby Creek, because it's right beside the road, you know, they get crowded where Slough Creek, yeah, you can get further up. You know, it's just like uh, say in the, in the Southwest corner of the park, Fall River and Beckler River. Um, you have to, you walk a ways and that, that eliminates a lot of people. But the tactics that you use on all those streams are all very similar. They're all meadow streams. They're all meadow streams. What are some of those tactics? You know, if you're going in there, let's say, 
I mean, I guess gear-wise, you're, you're probably using, you know, some pretty normal trout, lighter trout stuff. And it's all, are you pretty much hitting, is this like mostly dry flies, like 90% dry flies, or are you mixing that up? Well, early in the season, here's a strategy thing, and I talk about this in that uh, backcountry book, is uh, early in the season, in the runoff streams, you get uh, your food forms are mainly eroded from the banks, so you fish wet. Okay, when runoff starts receding, some of the first things that will start to come out will be your small stone flies, and then you get into some of the mayflies, like PMDs are usually first to come out, and then depending on conditions, you get into the drakes, you know, and this, this spans like from as soon as runoff gets out of the stream into, say, the middle of July or so. And then uh, when you get past the uh, mayfly peak, you start looking at, uh, oh, there's there's a few mayflies around, like speckled duns, and you get some uh, damsels and things, but you start looking more, you tend more and more towards terrestrial insects. And I'm talking about meadow streams now, or anything that's bordered by... Uh, you know, a good overhead uh, aquatic, I mean, uh, vegetation. Gotcha. So, so yeah, you start, and then, so the dry fly, it, it, it sounds like it's a good mixture. I mean, when you, best thing there to do is, I mean, your book, you kind of cover all this a little bit of, yes. uh, you know, what the entomology yeah. piece. Yeah. How did you first dig into all this? I and mean, is this all self-taught stuff or did you have, you know, how did you, because the entomology is not always the easiest thing. Well, it's not, but I, I had some people, um, helped me in this, uh, particularly beginning with uh, Bing Lemke, who's kind of the patron saint of uh, Idaho fly tires. And then, uh, of course, Jay Buckner is a, is one heck of a good entomologist and a fellow, I, a friend I just lost, Dr. Harley Reno. These people were all entomologists. They, they helped me out tremendously. But um, you've got to look at, you know, there's some generalization things that uh, – Early in the season, there's not that many mayflies in a lot of these streams. You know, the fish get their they get their food from what's eroded from banks, and you know, just nymphs on the bottom. You know, uh, you get the currents and the things. Uh, you know, the streams are more turbulent that time of year. More things are uh, sucked up or off the bottom and brought into the stream from bank or bank erosion. So, you start off the year with wet flies, and then gradually, as you lose your you run off in a lot of, and this, this applies to an awful lot of streams up here in the greater Yellowstone area. But then as runoff recedes, then you start getting into active aquatic insects. You know, whether it's uh, stoneflies or caddisflies, which are the most popular or most, uh, you know, in, in most of these streams, uh, anywhere there's a little gradient, you know, you find more of these than anything else. But yeah, as the season goes on, you you switch into uh, dry fly fishing. And it can be very effective if you know what you're doing. Okay. And on those wet flies, when you say wet flies, do you mean actual wet flies? Or are you talking about wet flies and nymphs, just anything below the surface? Both. Anything, you know, if you know the uh, insect structure of your stream, you know, uh, what, what insects, what aquatic insects are there, there's, there's flies that simulate those. But then also, um, you know, uh, life forms that have eroded into the stream, like uh, like it or not, earthworms. That's why woolly buggers are so, you know, so uh, effective. Uh, grubs and things, you know, things like that that eroded in from the banks. So it's a combination for these fish. And you got to remember that they don't have to come to the top to get these. They're usually either close to the bottom or part way up in the water column. Gotcha. Yeah. No. This is this is good. So. So there's, like you said, so going back, so early in the season, it's going to be higher. In those higher early season, you're kind of getting down. And then yeah. once you, that slows down and things calm down with the river, you start seeing some dry flies. How, how are you then pretty much fishing dries all the rest of the rest of the summer till the fall? You know, dry flies and, of course, um, you know, life cycle patterns, uh, particularly things like emergers, you know, emergers and duns. Uh, you know, the yellow sallies, uh, they, they emerge right in the stream, you know, so you use, they're one of the first ones to come out almost everywhere. But yeah, I'm fishing, let's say, to the surface and not too far from it, not far below it. Gotcha. Okay. And the the yellow sally, which I've used before, let's describe that one a little bit. Do you, do you know the that bug? Have you Is that one of your the most popular ones that you would say as far as, you know, kind of that time of year? 
Well, it's one of the first in in a lot of the meadow streams I fish. It's one of the first uh, aquatic insects to emerge. That's why I mention it. And so it can be, you know, life cycle forms of it can be very effective. And on the surface, something something as simple as uh, you know anything that imitates a caddis will work, or you know, anything anything like that. There's several yellow Sally patterns around. Any kind of emerger. Something as simple as a soft hackle of the right size will work. Soft hackle flies are extremely effective. So the soft hackle fly would be, uh, and so you're saying, uh, I'm thinking of this dry fly that I've used in the past, this little yellow sally, but you're talking in coloration. Are we talking yellow? Well, a lot of the colors depend on uh, water chemistry. For instance, um, you know, I don't know how much the yellow sallies vary, but PMDs, the color, the body color of PMDs of the duns vary depending on water chemistry. Like you go in the Henry's Fork and they're kind of a, oh, I'd say a yellowish olive, then the Fall River Basin streams are definitely chartreuse. You know, a lot of that depends on on the environment, you know, the uh I'd say almost, you know, it's, I'm overstating this a bit, but the chemical makeup of the water in which they're uh, they're living, right? Yeah, no, the the environment. So, okay, so so it's good to have a, a very. I mean, what is your fly box? If we were to look at your, uh, you know, your your Yellowstone box, say this box you're taking up to this area on Slough Creek, what what would that look like? Okay, if it's if it's uh, say the peak season there, which is usually sometime. In the first part of July, from there right on through September, you're going to have um, first, you know, there's the drakes that come off up there uh, early in the year, PMDs, sallies, and this is typical of meadow streams. Um, you're going to have those, uh, to have life cycle patterns for those. And then as the season goes on, uh, when some of the drakes start coming off, I'd have life cycle patterns for the green drakes, the brown drakes, and you know, I'm talking July. Um, something like that, uh, maybe even for damselflies. But early in the season, it would be um, it would be the uh, woolly buggers, maybe even streamers, and in particular, anything that imitates a dragonfly nymph. They're very popular or very uh, sought after by trout early in the year. You know, it's a big food form. And one thing you've got to remember about uh, trout activity is conservation of energy. If they don't have to go very far to get food from, they're not going to do it. And the reason why they'll come to the surface is because if, if there's an emergence or something, a lot of food forms up there, they'll come to the surface. But if not, hey, they stay at the bottom and look for nymphs and anything that's floating down through the river or the stream. There you go. Yeah, they're opportunistic. So, um so the so the let's go let's stay on that eel salad a little bit. So when you're talking, if you're fishing a um, a soft tackle, how are you fishing? Like, are you, are you is this a swing or how, take us? Yeah. Let's take it to Slough Creek. Let's say you're fishing a, a creek like that. How would you fish that? Well, I I don't have that much experience early in the season on Slough Creek, but let me give you experience on Beckler River, which is essentially the same kind of water, but uh, actually probably bigger and everything. What I'll do is if I see rises, I'll swing a soft tackle down to where I see a rise. And then, you know, the old lizen ring lift, just that lift right in front of the rise. And that's where soft tackles are so effective. If you, you know, if you fish them there, just present them as an emerger, at least in my experience. And that works just about everywhere. I remember years ago using them on, on the Firehole River. And that's one of the most effective flies on the Fall River. I don't care if, whether it's for uh, caddis or mayflies or whatnot. It's, it seems to be the same with yellow sallies emerging. And um, I would say if you talk to people with a lot of experience, they'll say, well, it works for anything. Mm-hmm. And the, the Lysenring lift, can you describe that, what that is exactly? That would be something where you drift the fly down to where a rise is. You could either swing it or just drift it you know, directly down. And as it moves down towards where the rise is, it sinks gradually in the water column, you know, not very much, maybe an inch or two. Then when it gets down, when the fly gets down, you judge it gets down to where the rise is, you just raise, gently raise the tip of your rod to simulate something, uh, you know, an insect uh, emerging into the surface. 
And this is what's happening. You're simulating, you know, an emerging insect. There you go. And and who was, uh, do you know who Lysenring was? He was a fly fisherman back in the middle 20th century that uh, first described that technique. I'm sure it was around a long time before that, but he, he wrote a, he wrote books on it, as I remember. Yeah, there you go. Okay, good. I'll have to, I'll have to dig uh, up some of those old books there. Uh, and then you mentioned a few entomologists uh, earlier on. Were those entomologists also uh, fly fishermen? Oh, definitely. You know, uh, Jay Buckner uh, is a well-known professional out here. The, the uh, I don't know where he started out, but um, he had a shop. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. He started in Jackson Hole and uh, and uh, went through uh, went through a whole a series or one shop that has become very popular, sold it. And now he does um, seminars on entomology and fly fishing technique in Jackson Hole. He was also a very well-known uh, fly tire, too. Uh, but, um, you know, it's kind of t- Harley Reno was, uh, was a doctorate-level fisheries biologist that uh, he guided some, but uh, mainly, you know, recreational and he developed fly rods and uh, seminars, these kind of things. That's how I got to know Harley through uh, some of his seminars and fly tying demonstrations. But uh, both of both of those guys are well. Harley passed away back earlier this year, unfortunately. But Jay is going strong. He's he's essentially an authority on, on entomology in this area. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of, I've heard his name. We, I've always we've kind of almost joked about it that our you know Rick Hayfley was the person I know best from an entomology I remember him. perspective. And, yeah, yeah. You remember Rick and uh, Hayfley and Hughes. Yeah, Hayfley and Hughes exactly. And I've been you know, all all these years. It's like you, you don't hear a lot of all other entomologists. So I'm glad you mentioned a couple here. Jay Buckner. I'll try to I'll try to track him down um, as well. Yeah, he is. A- person worth talking to about stream entomology at least and i'm sure somewhat with stillwaters too but he's he's a recognized authority on on uh, stream entomology all right well what have you learned from him is one of those things where you just learn so much you can't even uh, pinpoint uh, you know one well, thing as he what i've learned from him is what to expect what species of mayflies and caddisflies are in certain kinds of water you know, uh, where you find, let's say, um, your ephemerellas, you know, what kind of water you can expect them to be concentrated in, or uh, say like the summer drake, uh, where and when you find that being active, what kind of water. And there's, of course, there's books, there's entomology books out here. Dr. Paul Needham, you know, some of his books, he was a professor, in, I, I'm not sure, I think it was back east somewhere, New Jersey or could have been down in Utah for all I know, but uh, it's a good idea. Any Some of the books that uh, Schriebert wrote, uh, that big volume of his trout, you know, that has entomological, entomological information in it. But I think it's a good idea to take a look at some of those to see what, you know, it, it, it targets what kind of flies you want to use in a certain water. Right, right. Now, that's a huge uh, pain point for people as they – they come to a new river or stream and they're like, okay, where do, where do I fish? How do I read the water? And you're saying that this person shows you how to understand what bugs. I mean, essentially, I mean, reading the yeah. water, when somebody asks you that, what do you tell them? Like, how do I read water? How would you tell them out there? Well, it's a, it's a little complicated subject. It depends. If you're talking to an entry-level person, it's kind of like you relate it to the human experience. You say, hey, look. They're living in the deep water where there's less, less turbulence, just like you live inside to get out of the wind. But when you go to eat, you go somewhere else in the water. You go to where where, uh, where the food is, and that's usually the riffles and the runs, you know, that kind of thing. So you go into your dining room. And, you know, when you want to do just plain living, you know, just taking it easy, you go when you want cover and protection, you go to your living room or your family room. <laughs> just it's yeah. You know, there's parallels <laughs> with uh, human you know, the, the human, uh, experience that's for the, you know, that's of course for an entry level person. Yeah. Well, what about when you take it up to the next, like kind of mid level, what, how do you start changing that conversation with them? The best thing to do then would be to take a person out to a stream. If they want to fish a stream, you take them out to a stream. 
and you show them here's where the fish are, here's you know here's the way they work. They'll, they'll come in when the water temperature gets up to a certain spot, and the insects get active. Then they'll move to this area to feed. Okay, you do something to disturb them. Bang! You go back down into the you know the deeper water. They're going to stay there. You know, leave them alone. Come back half hour later when they're active. You know this kind of stuff. But you tell them where the fish are going to be depending on what they're doing, you know, in the water. And it applies somewhat to still water, too. A lot of people fish too deep in a lot of still water. Well, hey, yeah, there's probably more dissolved oxygen there, but there's less food. So when they want to forage for food, they go to a shallower water. Yep. Nice. Uh, this, I wonder- this is all brought out in that. Excuse me. Go ahead. In which book? Well, it's in the backcountry book. This this kind of strategy is all explained in that book. You know, in general terms, as the beginning of the book is pretty much general. You know, stuff it'll talk about these kind of things. Then we get into the subject of specific waters, where and how to fish specific waters. So you dig you you do a deep dive for each of those water bodies. So you mentioned what was the one you mentioned before? Not Slough Creek, but the one a little bigger than Slough that you fish that kind of has similar techniques. Oh, this is Fall River Basin in the southwest corner of the park. It's probably, this is this is debatable, of course, but you've got to go there. The thing of it is, is it's like Slough Creek. Uh, you got to walk away to get into the best of what the area has. But um, it's, it's essentially Fall River Basin. And the major streams would be Beckler and Fall River, Mountain Ash Creek and Boundary Creek. And, of course, uh, the lakes would be lakes at the head of Fall River, Bueller, and Herring. These are all backcountry waters. You know, you have to walk a little bit to get into them. They're not difficult walks, but it takes time. But the thing you got to remember is when you're in high country fishing, water temperatures take – it takes a while for water temperatures to get up for the aquatic insects to be active. And it's the same thing with air temperatures and the terrestrial insects. It takes it takes time for them to become active. So if you're, in particular, a dry fly fisherman, you don't have to be there at uh, 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. You wait till things warm up. So you got let's say you got to walk three miles. So what's that, maybe an hour, hour and 15 minutes? You time yourself so you get into when the insects are active, whether aquatic or terrestrial, that's usually when the sun's up and things have warmed up, whether it's water or the banks or anything like that. So, yeah, you know, in a lot of these backcountry waters, that's part of your strategy is, hey, you know, take time to walk in. It's not going to affect your fishing. The fishing doesn't improve until both the air and the water temperature gets up to a level where everything's active. I guess depending on when you're, let's just take it to that. Uh, well, so again, the yellow sowie when you're fishing those wet flies, that would be kind of a uh, like later July, August sort of thing. Uh, they they're one of the first things on these meadow streams, on several of the meadow streams to to emerge, and that's usually after your runoff uh, decreases, gets down to the point the water water temperature warms up, you know, clears up. Everything that's that depends. That's usually, like I say, end of July or first part of. I mean, the end of June, first part of July, and that so much depends on how much snowfall there's been in the, and what kind of uh, weather conditions you get going on in the spring. Yeah, it all depends. But that's a good one to have in your box. And uh, and so when you're fishing that again, so, so you're at the stream. Uh, you're seeing some risers. Are you kind of uh, working little specific sections? Or are you kind of working your way down through a uh, an area? Are you typically working downstream or upstream on these things? Well, I've, I typically look downstream, and a lot of it is getting a good downstream drift. And like I say, with a soft hackle to where the rises are. You know, we we've talked about the soft hackles and. You know, sallies are not particular to meadow streams, of course. There's some areas, you know, uh, streams with gradient or something where they're even more concentrated. But I just mentioned them because they're one of the first insects to emerge after runoff in a lot of the meadow streams around the greater Yellowstone area. Yeah, no, that's good. I'm glad you And then so as you get in. Like you said, you mentioned some of those other uh, insects that we can dig into your book. Um, no, I'm going to say all of that is in that uh, Yellowstone Backcountry book. And it starts out being general, but then it gets specific as we go through the Yellowstone Park waters, Idaho, East Idaho, 
Montana, Southwest Montana, and Northwest Wyoming waters. We get specific for, you know, some of the backcountry waters. And you literally covered every single like backcountry water that's out there. <laughs> Let's put it this way. There's some that I didn't. And, uh, you know, I was limited, you know, like any publishing company, they're going to limit you as to how much you can do and reach water. I want to have some essence in there for people to, uh, you know, get some knowledge from. So I, I couldn't cover every water, but I covered what I thought would be significant waters. Gotcha. And who is, um, just to, for a second, I've been, I've been curious, I've been hearing this name. We've had a, a few uh, episodes, um, you know, we had some uh, big sky anglers on, talked a little bit about West Yellowstone. We had, um, we did a Henry's Fork episode, but I'm curious, Bob Jacklin is somebody we haven't had on. Can you talk about uh, Bob, why he, he seems like he's a big name out there. Talk about how you know him. He's an icon, and I got to know Bob just because I would go to West Yellowstone the town of West Yellowstone, and from there go to fish various parts of the, you know, park waters. And also um, the Federation of Fly Fishers, now known as Fly Fishing International, I met Bob through there, through many of the conclaves that uh, that organization had in West Yellowstone. But I met Bob, and essentially we, we became friends, but Bob has been a it's a very interesting story. He started out in New Jersey, and after he got out of the service, he'd drive to the greater Yellowstone area, Yellowstone Park, and fished. He always wanted to do this when he was younger, but when he was able to get out and drive out, he'd drive out and fish in the summers. This was back in the late 60s or so. Uh, he'd drive out in the summers and go back to uh, Jersey in the fall, you know, this is typical. A lot of people go to go to school or work or whatever, then come out the next year. And he got so interested in it that uh, Bud Lilly hired the guy as a guide and a fly tire. And eventually Bob had enough experience and exposure to begin his own business in the middle 70s. He'd make a very good interview for you sometime. But uh, through that, he just became an icon there. He's uh I think his shop, he, essentially what happened was he bought, he bought Pat Barnes, Pat Barnes Tackle Shop in back in, 19, in the early 80s. And um, this kind of increased his business into, uh, you know, international status, so to say, that Pat had built. And, of course, um, yeah, and this, uh, this is this last book that I did, Fly Fishing, West Yellowstone History and a Guide. That, uh, that history... Bob's history, Craig Matthews's history, uh, Bud Lilly's history, et cetera, et cetera. It's all in that book. So you have not only that we've been talking about this backcountry book, the, uh, a little yeah. older book, but this new book you have goes into. So this is all the history of like how far back of the history do you go in that book? Well, with respect to the greater Yellowstone area, I, I go back essentially to the uh, turn of the 19th century when, uh, you know, there was no town, essentially. People... Uh, would come out here and go in the back country or and fish, you know, by horseback and maybe maybe local guides, this sort of thing. But there was no uh, fly fishing community established. But uh, as time went on, that community developed, and we follow that through. The development of West Yellowstone is a you know essentially today it's it's the icon fly fishing community. It wasn't say back in the 30s and the 40s when you know your Catskill. Uh, fishermen were around, but now it is. And um, also, besides the history in that book, we discuss the, uh, you know, the major waters. And there's also a section with about 200 of the famous flies that have come out of West Yellowstone. You know, it's more of an interest to a guy that wants to know who was here before me. Why, Why have I got what I, why do I have what I have here fishing? You know, who was here before me? Why, who established this? It's more in the for the person that's interested in that, whereas a backcountry book is for the guy that wants to get out and catch fish in a tranquil situation. There you go. Yeah, they both sound great. And and are you now, where, where are you located now? Idaho Falls, Idaho. Yeah, you're in Idaho Falls. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so you're you're right in that area. And uh, I remember we came through there. Uh, well, I guess we were, the fires, right? You've been seeing some of that. Have, has this has oh, it been yes. kind of a every 
every summer of the fire has been kind of there every summer the last few years? Yeah, there's been times when the fires have closed down certain places to fish, you know, like uh, you up here in southwest Montana in uh, Centennial Valley, the area up above Elk Lake was uh, closed for a good length of time because of a fire up by Hidden Lake. You know, these are these are really um, icon waters. You know, they're a little bit, you know, out of the out of the beaten path. You've got to go through gravel roads and everything. But, uh, you know, some of these waters were actually closed because of, of the fires, you know, people setting up uh, facilities and everything and fighting the fires themselves. You know, uh, they kept the public out just because of, of dangers. And, of course, this year the other problem was we've, we've had an ongoing drought. We had a very dry spring. And, uh, for example, a lot of the waters were closed um, in Montana, they had uh, they established this hudao closures where you couldn't fish. You could only fish certain times a day. Now that happened a lot in Montana, not so much in Idaho. A good example was they 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 closed a couple of creeks completely to protect, you know, like West Slope cuts and grayling from people fishing them just just because the water was so low and warm in these areas. Effects of the drought. Exactly. Yeah, the draw has been kind of tough. Well, let's um, let's circle back around. I want to kind of start to wrap us up uh, here in a little bit, but um, yeah. we have a little segment called the 222 Top Flies Tips and Resources. And if we stick to, you know, like we were talking about, a little bit more of that backcountry stuff, maybe it's Upper Slough Creek yeah. or any of those streams. I mean, is it pretty much, if you think any of those upper streams where you hike into you know, is it the same selection? I mean, pretty much doesn't matter where you are in the park. It's kind of the same. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's a lot of similarities. Um, you know, this is all high country. And so when the streams, fish in these streams become active, is very similar. doesn't matter. You know, all these streams are 6,000 feet or higher, you know. And so, you know, your air temperature and your weather conditions – they affect all these streams in the same way. And your fly selection, I think, are, you know, that's fly selection is so subjective. If you ask me what patterns would you have, Bruce? Well, I've got a favorite pattern that imitates both stoneflies and, and uh, hoppers and, you know, uh, larger life forms like the insect life forms like that. It's called a dry muddler. And I have that everywhere I go. And, um, but as I say in that backcountry book, if you learn the progression of terrestrial and aquatic insects, you take life cycle patterns for those. And I mentioned something like soft tackle patterns. Uh, they, they're, they're great for almost any aquatic insect, uh, emerging aquatic insects, I, I, I should, should say. But uh, you've got to know what the aquatic insects and terrestrial insects are on each area. And then you go and find or uh, accumulate, you know, fly patterns for those particular, the life cycle of those insects. All those meadow streams are similar. I don't care whether it's Slough Creek or Beckler River or uh, the upper Blackfoot River here in East Idaho or some of the smaller streams around the meadow streams. Uh, there's, there's, you know, there's similarities. There's so many similarities on what kind of uh, flies you should be using. Early in the season, you use, like I say, the woolly buggers and the streamers. And then you go to the aquatic insect streams when the runoff water clears out or the water itself warms up, you know, in the summer or spring. Then back in the fall, you go back to the streamers, you know, because the brown trout are active and the rainbows are following them. You know, there's a whole array of uh, flies that you use depending on where you're going what the stream is like, and what part of the season you're fishing. That's part of the fascination of fly fishing. Yeah, it is. It's, it seems like it, it's definitely, there's so much to it. You could go as deep as you want, or you can go to, like we kind of joke about it sometimes, like the Euro nymphs, you know, that are don't really look like anything necessarily. You know, you might just get a hot spot, a hot pink spot in a slim fly. Do you see, um, you know, people using those up there quite a bit now? Are you doing any, like, dry dropper stuff? I do a little bit, but not much. I do, you know, dry dropper fishing. Mostly, I, since you mentioned, I mostly do that in still waters. But, um, yeah, uh, these techniques are great if you use them in, under the right conditions. 
you know, so many times presentation overwhelms fly selection. You've got to present these flies in, in the right manner. You know, we hear drag free on the surface and everything. Then even under the surface, you've got to make a fly active or fish a dead drift, depending on what the, uh, you know, the predominant uh, life, life form is doing, how it acts, you know, what you're trying to imitate. <laughs> it's a lot different than bait fishing when you just drift a nightcrawler into a hole, isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned, let, let's get, let's grab one more fly. So you mentioned the dry muddler. I know there's a lot of variation, but if you're going to take another you know, go-to fly in your box, what, what else do you, if you had to throw another one out there? Okay. If it were going to be a, a wet fly, my favorite is a fly called a peacock leech. What it is, it's a woolly bugger tied with a with a peacock body and a gold bead in front and ginger hackle and ginger marabou. And I'll vary the size on this depending on what the life form is I'm trying to imitate. But the fly, that fly is just so versatile. It can imitate a leech. It can imitate a dragonfly nymph if it's large enough or a damselfly nymph can even imitate something like a minnow or, um, you know, it depends how you present it and where you present it. But that, that would be the second fly. That would be a wet fly I'd have in, in my fly box. When it comes to streamer fishing, I particularly like soft hackle streamers. They're essentially uh, soft hackle flies tied with marabou feathers. You put a bead on them so they get down deep, you know, this kind of thing. So, those would be three of my favorite flies right there. Another one that, that I like, uh, uh, some of these emerger patterns, some of the harrop patterns are uh, a superb patterns, you know, for imitating different parts of uh, insect life cycles. There you go. And how are you fishing that peacock leech like or a woolly bugger? How would you fish that during early in the season? Well, in still waters, I'll use it. Like I say, in smaller sizes, imitate a damselfly nymph. For, uh, you know, if it's early in the season, a little bit larger, like about a size four or something, imitate a dragonfly nymph. Uh, early in the season, dragonfly nymph patterns are extremely effective, especially in still waters. Um, you can imitate a leech. You know, one of the best places around uh, the greater Yellowstone area to use leeches are beaver ponds, you know, active beaver ponds. All you got to do is wade wet in the beaver pond. You'll see why leeches are so popular. But um, yeah, anything that's that's, that's versatile. The dry muddler is a versatile pattern because you, you can be used and tie in certain colors to imitate uh, grasshoppers, even crickets, and also any kind of large stonefly like a uh, golden or a terranarch. Any of those, you know, just it, you know, any fly that's that can imitate different life forms at different times is something that everybody should consider. And we all end up having their favorites. You know, the ones I mentioned are mine. And that's based on experience. That's based on, you know. And what about a couple of tips? If we're talking, uh, so we're fishing, you know, out there, let's say we're, take us to, again, that July, earlier part of the season. What would you tell somebody if they're out there trying to catch a few fish? Would you give them a tip or two? Okay. The one thing you got to remember, the fish are there 24-7. So they, when they look up uh, past the water towards a bank, when they see that, you know, when they see those things, they see a bank that's pretty much the same. But then all of a sudden, here's a person six foot tall that's standing there. Okay, that's, that's unusual. So what happens is that essentially puts them down. The thing you want to do is long casts. Keep away from the banks as much as possible. What I like to do, whether it's a Slough Creek or a Beckler Meadows or a Blackfoot River in Idaho, is I will go ahead and fish the bank furthest away from me and fish with a downstream drift. In other words, I put that fly ahead of me and use the current to get a get a uh, natural drift and just keep on. It's almost like... Uh, steelheading you walk down through an area and, you know take that fly put it on the other side of the bank let it drift close to the bank or into a hole but try to stay as much as possible at least 30 feet away where their vision doesn't isn't as effective so you know you want to not disturb what they see 24 7 is what i'm saying that's a good tip 
So basically in 30 feet, that's a good distance. So yeah. and you're kind of fishing downstream and across. Yeah. Or even the same bank, fish it downstream, you know, below you, you know, everything like that, you know, drift with the current. There you go. Or, or just, oh, right. So just drift down. So get it out towards the bank and then just let the current naturally just drift it down. Yeah. Okay. Then you might have to, you know, follow it down, walk down, but you're away from that water. You know, if that flies, you know, that distance away, the chances of them seeing you diminish. Yeah, that's the thing, you know, so you don't want to just walk right out, yeah, into the creek and spook the fish. Yeah. And are you typically fishing in these runs or these little runs, you're looking for some structure under there, just like normal, something that they, they could hold around? Well, you know, cut banks. That's a, that's a great uh, piece of cover for a fish, you know, get underneath a cut bank or even the heads of a head of a pool. Because, you know, if something startles them, they can get back under the bank or they can get back into that pool. So that kind of structure, you know, in stream stuff, you know, like a down tree or something, that's, that's overhead cover. Anything that looks like overhead cover or in the stream cover, like boulders or something, you know, they'll, they'll sit behind a, you know, something very large, like a large boulder, just, you know, there's less turbulence right behind it. You know, so you look for submerged structure as well as uh, above the surface structure. Okay. And uh, do you want to give us uh, maybe one more uh, tip again? So we're out there in this area. We've got, um, we're looking for cover. We're swinging it down the bank. Uh, you know, or you're using that, uh, that, that Lysen ring lift, right? Anything else you throw out there if you're fishing maybe that soft tackle? Well, that happens. I use that one as an emergence going on pretty much. When the fish are active, you know, going to the surface, picking things off, you know, a lot of what they pick off is just below the surface. That's where a soft tackle can be particularly effective is, you know, something that's approaching the surface. So you got to remember for that insect to break the surface takes a lot of energy. And so, you know, getting past the surface to fly away is difficult for these insects in general. And so there's like a uh, place where they pause, and that's when the fish will sit there and, and grab them when they're doing that. So, yeah, that is that is something when, when there's an emergence going on, a soft tackle can be extremely effective to, you know, to imitate, say, an emerging insect. No, it's effective. And, and just the wet fly swing. So I'm curious, you know, uh, thinking a little more about just the area itself. I know when we were there this year, it was pretty uh, spectacular. Well, what's, what's kept you, you know, like when you think of Yellowstone, there's so much going on there. Is there, is there one thing that really sticks out to you that makes you really love that area or something you'd, you know, somebody who hasn't been there before, what would you tell them? Well, you know, you've got to, you know, everybody should at least try the Icon waters, you know, the Madison, the Henry's Fork, the South Fork reach of the Snake River, you know, Firehole, Louisiana. Give them a try. But the thing is, is you're going to find that there's a lot of, a lot of activity human activity going on, whether it's people waiting or people boating. And so many of these backcountry waters, you know, there's there's no boating. It's impossible. How do you get how do you get a boat into into Slough Creek? Other than, you know, of course it's illegal anyways. But you eliminate a lot of the uh, human traffic by going in the backcountry. And so I would say that yeah, give those areas a try, but look at any any book or anything in the media discovered that uh, describes backcountry waters, because in general, you know, you're going to have, if you look at the big picture, you know, the scenery, the tranquility, the good fishing, you're going to have a more interesting experience. Yeah, sure. There's some of them, these places you're going to expend, have to expend some time and some energy to get to, but it's darn well worth it. But look at the strategy gems about, Hey, Things aren't active in there till a certain time. You know, this is high country. It takes time for things to warm up to a point where food forms are active. You know, you, you know, it's all in that backcountry book, and it's in, in some of the other books around too. Gotcha. All right, what is that book uh, like on Amazon or wherever? What, what's that book run? The backcountry book. These books, uh, Stackpole prices them all. They're all about thirty bucks. You know, uh, you know, something like that. They're not the fifty, sixty dollar books, and they're all. Um, pretty much uh, soft cover. But uh, there's a lot of information about, if you're coming to the greater Yellowstone area, about selecting places to fish other than the Icon waters. And there was nothing else in the media produced that was like this. 
And so, like I say, when I proposed this to Stackpole, uh, the fellow I was working with, he didn't let me finish my sentence. He says, hey, I'm sending your contract right now. I see what you're talking about. There's nothing out there. You know, this is uh, new territory. So let's go ahead and do it. There you go. And what is that when, when they send that contract to you? What, what is that typically? Is that just basically saying you have a certain amount of time and, you know, to finish this? Yeah, a certain amount of time. We don't know more than these number of words, like let's say 100,000 words is your cap. You know, if you go over a couple thousand, no problem. You know, not another 100,000 or 50,000, but that, and that you will, you know, at this time you will do this. You know, you'll present us a, a preliminary draft at this, you know, at this time and a final draft. And, you know, we will review it. Then you make uh, revisions and the final draft will come out. You know, we want to see that you know, at this date, this kind of thing, there's a time sequence in there. And all you do is just agree to it and uh, take it from there. But uh, the three books I've done for Stackpole, that's how they work. There you go. And I remember asking this question a, a long time ago to uh, John Girock we had on. I asked him what it felt like when his uh, his next book comes out. What's it feel like for you when you get this last new book or or the first one? How, how, did that, how does that feel? Well, you get a sense of accomplishment. And one of the things I want to do is I've had a lot of experience fly fishing in the greater Yellowstone area. I want to pass my experience on. I want to share it with people that I think have values. And mo- most fly fishermen are pretty astute people as, with respect to, hey, I've got to take care of this water if I want to enjoy it or if my family wants to enjoy it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it helps in particular the person who's looking at coming to this area, where do I fish? How do I fish? And when do I fish? And for the person with experience, it opens up another avenue of where they can go and where you see more of the big picture, which includes, you know, good fishing, tranquility, and good scenery. And good wildlife, right? Have you, have you seen some pretty, uh, pretty amazing wildlife? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. There's times you got to be, you know, like I give um, comments or suggestions on how to behave in bear country, you know, what to do in bear country. That's in that backcountry book. It's essential to that book. That's right. Yeah, bears. You've seen, uh, how about wolves? Do you see many wolves out there? Yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, they're a little different. I've, I've had one or two wolves ex- experience. I had one in Beckler Meadows, which is, uh, I, I consider to be rather humorous. And I've had a couple of grizzly bear experiences. I had a grizzly bear experience on Duck Creek that I'll never forget. You know, the bear was huge, but he was almost like domestic. You know, people that live in subdivisions around there had seen him before. But um, you got to be aware of the wildlife. Of course, buffalo can be awfully dangerous, too. I remember getting trapped on a bend on the Firehole River years ago while there was a herd of buffalo right down where I wanted to cross the stream. My, you know, my fishing partner and I wanted to cross, you know, we had to wait till they got out of the way, you know? So yeah, up in this neck of the woods, you got to be aware of wildlife. And I talk about, I talk about that in the book too. Yeah. It sounds like you cover a little bit of everything is, is the Buffalo, the biggest danger there is that they kind of just stampede sort of thing like there, but, or what is the biggest danger? Well, the biggest danger is, is, uh, getting too close to them. And I mean, like within 50 yards or something, not 50 feet, uh, you know, hey, they look at you as an intruder. And if they're protecting calves or if the bull is, you know, uh, getting ready for a rut or is in a fighting mood or something, hey, you're in danger. You know, we, we, every year we have experiences with uh, particularly buffalo where people get too darn close to them. But it can happen with elk. It can happen with moose. You know, it can happen with anything. So, uh you know, you avoid, you know, you're the intruder. This is really their country and you're coming in, you're the intruder. <laughs> you're the one that needs to get out of the way. We noticed that when we were there because we were at, we were on the Lamar uh, River and there is some, you know, a herd around us and we were st- sitting there in this little, we were fishing this little stretch and there's this uh, buffalo that was on the other bank, you know, like 40 feet away waiting for us to get out of the way. And, uh, and it could have just walked across but it waited until we got up and we finished fishing and then we left and it right after that, it waited right across where we were. So it seemed like that one was being pretty polite, but you're saying they're not always like that. That's exactly right. You know, it's just like the human race There's renegades and there's, there's people that are considerate, you know, same thing. 
they have to kill bears once they had to kill a grizzly up here back in the spring because uh, he really, I can't remember if, the, if it was fatal or not, but uh, I think it was, come to think of it, right up here by Baker's Hole Campground just outside of West Yellowstone. He was fishing and the bear attacked him. But the bear was, I can't remember whether it was protecting a carcass or protecting cubs. I just don't remember. But see, you don't know. So the best thing to do is, is to keep away from these animals. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, uh, let's just take it out. Let's finish up that, uh, the 222. So, uh, so we talked a lot about your books. You've got, we'll put all links to all of your books there. What about another resource? If somebody's planning a trip right now and they want to get into the fishing and get things dialed, uh, any other like books, magazines, videos, other resources you'd recommend that, that aren't your own? There are, are yours, the main ones that are out there. You know, the thing about magazine articles are really interesting. A lot of the guys that write these, they're, um, they've got a date when they've got to produce and have an article in there. So a lot of times it's easier for them to go to a, ro- a water that's adjacent to a road. You know, go ahead and fish that or talk to people that are fishing it rather than going into the backcountry. That takes time. And there's uncertainties with respect to weather. and There's dangers with respect to uh, not just weather, but even wildlife. We just mentioned that. Uh, one of the best things to do, I would think, would be consult with any shop that has integrity with respect to the information they give out. You know, consult with a shop. You know, what's written a lot of times, I, I don't subscribe to any magazines anymore because I've seen so many distortions and mistakes. And it's like Bud Lilly says, he says, if he wants to see the size of a trout, he has to look at him. He doesn't look in a magazine because uh, they tend to be, um, you know, the size of the trout out here tend to be uh, distorted in a positive way, <laughs> you know. Oh, Roy. Yeah, just to sell a copy. But the best thing to do, I would say, would be consult with a shop with high integrity. And there's several shops. that I don't want to mention specific ones because I'm sure I'll leave some out. But you look at their websites. And then if necessary, or if you want to, you can talk to people. And there's, there's people in these shops that want to give you informa- good information, solid information, because you'll become a customer. You'll become part of the clientele. But beware of the guy that's sitting there telling you how big the fish are and Oh, I had this experience, that experience. Talk to the guy that's going to tell you, if you're coming out this time of year, do this, do that. Don't come this time of year. Come this this time of year because certain things are happening that make the fish more active. He's going to give you information like that. There's several shops in the area that you can find. Usually they have pretty extensive websites with a lot of information on them. And people are willing to talk to you. Perfect. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there uh, for this one, Bruce. Uh, maybe, maybe just give us a heads up in the next like uh, nine months or so. Anything uh, new coming up for you? You want to give a shout out? Any, any other books coming up in the works? Um, I've got a couple ideas, but I just don't know. You know, these companies, what they want to do, uh, these publishing companies, they want books that are going to sell. And luckily, you know, the books that I've done from at least the last two or maybe the first one are still selling. But um, they're going to look at something and, and say, well, we don't think that's going to sell. It's like this history, West Yellowstone history book. I, I submitted the first draft of that almost 10 years ago. They turned me down. And then uh, Stackpole was bought by a company that had a different philosophy. They want to include the history of, you know, outdoor activities. I don't care whether it's backpacking or, you know, uh, rock climbing or fly fishing or what. And so uh, they told me, let's go ahead and do that history book in West Yellowstone. And come to find out, you know, it's it's selling very well. That's great. Give us a little uh, one uh, from that story. You talk about your history and stories. Give us a, a unique story, something from the history that we might not know about from the like the last couple hundred years in West Yellowstone. Anything stick out to you, like a kind of a good, funny, crazy story or anything? Well, to me, uh, the thing I found interesting was a succession of advocates in West Yellowstone. You know, start started out becoming a destination, gee whiz, probably back in the early 20th century. But the succession of people from the Vint Johnsons and the Don Martinez's to the Pat Barnes and the Buddleys to the Greg Matthews and the Bob Jacklins, I found that fascinating. 
And the question becomes, well, who's going to succeed these guys to keep the tradition going for that town? I found that fascinating. Ah, that's a pretty big shoes to fill. Is is Bob? So Bob Jacklin's still there. He he must be. Yeah, he's he's still there. Um, Blue Ribbon Flies has been sold. Craig Matthews sold it back in 2015. And of course, um, let's see, uh, Eric Swanson. He's still active. He started back in the 90s. But um, what's the succession going to be like? And of course, with respect to me uh, personally, fishing uh, starting out in the Icon waters and discovering these backcountry waters that were just offered just as good, if not better experience, that progression, you know, that, that started back in the 70s when, well, back in the 80s when I found Heroin State Park to become so crowded, you know, forced me into the Beckler Meadows, Fall River, Upper Slough Creek, uh, Blackfoot River areas, you know, that, that, that was fascinating to personally, you know, just to see that succession. Cool. And we could, I guess, well, and like we said, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into some of the, uh, some of your books that we want to follow up. So, um, okay, Bruce, well, I'll, uh, I'll send everybody out to, um, yeah, I guess where would be the best place to send them if they want to pick up your book right now, where would you send them? You can get it through Amazon. Um, you can get it through most of the fly shops in the backcountry here. I mean, in, in the greater Yellowstone area and it's around the country, but, uh, I don't know that distribution, you know, where you can find it outside of the, um, greater Yellowstone area, you might have to contact uh, somebody in um, Stackpole. They're the publisher. But almost all the shops in, in this area would have it, and it's just a matter of a phone call or a, or an email or something if you have it. But uh, most of the shops will ship it to you, you know, twenty nine ninety five plus postage, you know, which is usually just a few bucks. But uh, Jimmy's All Seasons Angler here in Idaho Falls, Blue Ribbon Flies in West Yellowstone, et cetera, et cetera. Shops like this, you know, shops with integrity. Yeah, no, that's great. Okay, perfect. Well, we'll, we'll leave it there for now, and uh, and I'll definitely be picking up a, a copy of this, but we're going to hopefully get out there again this next summer and uh, probably get out a little earlier. It sounds like, yeah, well, I'll check in with them. And um, But, yeah, Bruce, until we meet again, thanks for taking the time today and shedding some light on all this and all the good work you've been doing over the years. Well, I apologize for the razzmatazz getting onto the, you know, this scene, but uh, – I didn't have a lot of information on how to do it. And other than that, uh, I enjoyed talking with you, Dave, and keep in touch. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links, and everything else we covered today, head over to wetflyswing.com slash 269. That is 269, 269-er. Please subscribe if you get a chance. If you haven't already, if you're new to the show and you want to uh, follow this show, get the next episode delivered right to your inbox. You can just click that subscribe button and just like magic, it drops in when this episode goes live, usually first thing in the morning. And uh, first thing in the morning on this Thursday, we have another uh, Planet Protect, which we're calling Planet Protect, the series that dives into some of the the large conservation issues around um, the country. And the world. Uh, this week, uh, Thursday, is the Everglades Foundation. We've got a podcast where we dig into that um, that big issue that's going on. So really interesting stuff. Uh, Steve Davis, a, a scientist from that area, talks about it. So uh, click that subscribe button. You'll get updated when it goes live. I want to just say thanks again. Thank you for uh, listening all the way till the end here and supporting the show. Appreciate you for being out there. And I uh, hope to maybe catch you online here or maybe on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.